Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality. I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. So before I get to my guest, I want to talk about a few things that I've been watching this week. I had a chance to see the new uh, documentary on Hulu about WeWork, the I think it's $67 billion unicorn or $47 billion unicorn is a lot of money. Um, I have been mildly obsessed with this story. I listened to the podcast that Wondry did, which was really good, better than the documentary, although I thought the documentary was was really well done. My biggest issue was just I really can't stand the, the dude, Adam. He's just, I mean, it, it's just basically like another variation on Nexium or Wild Wild Country or any other cult. I mean, it was just the building of a cult for profit. We've seen it a million times. You you can dress it up any way you want, but at the end of the day, it's just a guy trying to, it's just a snake, art, a, a snake oil salesman. So he got, you know, you'd like to say he got what was coming, but he really didn't because, well, I won't spoil it. So you can, you can watch that on Hulu. I, I think it's worth the watch. I did watch finally the Tina Turner documentary on HBO. I loved it. I love Tina. She's such an icon. Um, I thought it was really well done. And I cried. I cried. I cried a few times and I really cried at the end. I got very emotional. I don't know if I was just in the right headspace or the wrong headspace, but I got very emotional. I thought it was really beautiful, really, really well done. And I am watching the Demi Demi Lovato series on YouTube, Dancing with the Devil. I think there's been four episodes that have dropped. I think it's really good, actually. I recommend it. It's really about her drug addiction and how she got through it and the repercussions. And it really goes very kind of raw. It's a raw look at addiction. I think she's being extremely honest. uh, And so are the people around her. And I think it talks a lot about exploitation of artists and the kinds of pressures that they're under, especially when they're young. It sort of gets into that in the the latest episode. So I, I recommend that. I think it's, it looks beautiful too. Shout out to Arlene Nelson who shot it. She's such an amazing cinematographer. So today on the podcast is Sirens Media President Miyoshi Hill. Miyoshi is a longtime producer. She started on the production company side and that eventually made her way over to Lifetime where she was the VP of development for the last four to five years. She oversaw shows like Little Women LA, Finding Justice, Making a Model with Yolanda Hadid and Vivica's Black Magic. So she only joined Sirens recently in January of this year, and the company is coming in strong in 2021 with a great season of Real Housewives of New Jersey. I'm really, I I love this season. And a new show called The Wedding Coach, which premieres April 7th on Netflix. And I got a chance to uh, watch this early and watch a few episodes. It's very cute and entertaining. So I encourage you to check it out. Hi, Miyoshi. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Excited to be here. I'm really excited you're here. I've been tracking you, as they say, for a while now, since you were at Lifetime and um, working for Eli, who's a friend of mine. And I thought, she's somebody that I don't know, but I would like to know and hear more about. And then when I saw the announcement that you had become the head of Sirens, I thought, okay, now now we must get her on for real. And, And here you are. Took a little while, but you're here. Hey, better late than never. No, I'm so excited to be here. You've been doing great, great work on this podcast. So now I feel like I get to sit with the cool kids by being invited <laughs> to be a part of it. Uh, I don't know about cool. that, but, th- but thanks. I try. I try. Um, yeah, I mean, you've been in the business a while. I'd love to start 
you know, I took my notes and I, and I'm, I'm ready to deep dive on the career, but then I realized that I have this sort of gap where like, I don't know where you're from. I don't know where you started. So I would love to start a little bit more at the beginning so I can have the context. So if Whoa. you're comfortable standing, okay. if you're comfortable there, I'd love <laughs> to, I'd love to know where did it all begin for me, Oshie Hill? I know, right? The, the magic, you know, every storyteller, that's a dangerous question to ask us. We get very dreamy eyed. Um, no, I mean, I, I grew up uh, half of my childhood in Chicago, uh, the other half of my childhood in Colorado. So had a, had a really great um, childhood and upbringing and um, always just really had a love for books and literature first and, and just was a geeky reading person always. Reading and writing was my jam. Um, and, you know, when I went to undergrad, I went to undergrad at CSU in Colorado. And, um, you know, I thought that I wanted to go into journalism. I was pretty strong-willed about that and and was studying broadcast journalism. And again, just found myself kind of always looking at the entertainment news and, and always being drawn to what critics were saying and what was happening um, in pop culture. And so when I graduated um, with my BA, I said, you know, maybe I should look into a career in film and television. And because I'm a geeky person, I was like, well, I must go to school, even though everyone's like, mm, you, you, you really don't have to go to school. But um, I did. And I, I wound up going to uh, the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University. And, and so became an orange woman and met my tribe of other geeky, you know, film girls and guys that just loved everything um, TV and pop culture. And so um, while I was there and, and just really wanted to learn the basics, how do you write a script? How do you shoot? You know, what are the cameras? What does it look like? Um, and learned all that stuff and, and graduated and then did what I think every smart, successful person should do, which is just take the first job, take the say yes to the first person that's stupid enough to hire you, basically. And so um, at that time, it was uh, for a Food Network show um, in the lifestyle space and they needed PAs and production assistants. And I was like, I'm here, sign me up for it. And so, you know, the first few years of my career, I really just started to ride the wave of heart production and, and, and mostly floating from show to show in this lifestyle space, you know, home shows, food shows, learned all the nuts and uh, bolts of production life and wound up really just falling in love with the idea of everyday storytelling. You know, at that time, there really wasn't like, unscripted versus scripted. There wasn't a choice to be made. You know, you go to school, you think that you're going to be the next Spielberg, Scorsese, or you're going to be able to, you know, write for Angels in America. And so I, I was like all the kids wanting all of that. But then when I got into real production, I also just fell in love with the simplicity of going into people's homes and kitchens and, and, building story around the everyday lives that they had. And so um, I built my career as a freelance producer first in that space. And then after a little while doing that, was just super curious about development and wanting to know like, okay, well, who, why, why do certain shows exist? And whose dumb idea was this? Or whose brilliant idea was that? And so um, at the time I was working for a production company called High Noon Entertainment on the freelance side. And then they had a they had a position open up in their development team. It was an entry-level development coordinator position. Um, my boss at the time 
she was obsessed with JJ Abrams and Felicity like I was. So I was like, boom, boom, let's do this. And we, we, we started working together and, and that's when I got the development bug per se. And so I spent about six years working for high noon in the development department, climbed from entry level to senior, um, you know, director of development there and sold a lot of different shows with them. You know, they're such a reputable company, um, particularly in the lifestyle space. I learned so much from them and uh, was able to work on great shows like Unwrapped and Cake Boss and all these shows that live in people's homes, uh, particularly when they're at home looking for comfort. And, and, you know, after being there for a few years, decided that I wanted to, you know, figure out what life was like elsewhere, like we all do eventually. And so we had an amicable parting and I wound up um, leaving a high noon to go to a boutique production company called Hudson Media run by Michael Rourke, who maintains a friendship and mentorship with me. And I was his vice president of development. And we sold a show called Pregnant Heels to Bravo. And then we sold a show called I'm Having Their Baby to Oxygen. And then we just kept selling shows together. And that was a really exciting chapter because I feel like there was really a reflection of my personal interest. You know, I tend to be someone that is very pop culturally focused. And so I like the gritty and the glossy side of this world. And I was able to do both at Hudson. So we did everything from House of DVF with Diane von Furstenberg starring, which was like a dream come true. Um, worked with Andre Leon Talley and, and, and launched all the Condé Nast YouTube channel. So it was very fashion-y and, and glitzy. But then on the other side of it, we also did, you know, this really amazingly heart heart bending, you know, show called I'm having their baby for oxygen. That was about birth moms and, and adoptive parents, you know, finding the right way to make a great life for, for new babies. So it was great and awesome. And I did that for a few years. And um, then after being SVP over there for a little while, I myself got pregnant, which was awesome. And my husband and I decided, okay, well, let me take a break from this all. And so I, decided, I think at the time I was like, okay, so I'm finished. It's been a great ride. I'm going to make this beautiful baby in this family. Here I come, Arthur Stewart. And it was a little bit of that, but then I also was like, oh, I got to miss making TV. And so, um, you know, decided to leave um, domesticity when Eli Lair gave me a call, your, your buddy, and said that he was looking for a vice president of um, development and programming at Lifetime. So, jumped over from production to network executive and it was great. Okay, great. So now we've done the cliff notes. Now I want the deep dive. Um, okay. First of all, before I forgot, I love pregnant in heels. I, I just want to say that was one of my favorite oh, shows. Great. Yeah. Really love that show. So I have a question about Syracuse. So it's funny what you yeah. said about so like a lot of people saying like, why are you going to get more school? Because I went to Northwestern for journalism too. And it was the same thing. Mm-hmm. It was like, why are you paying to do something you could just do in an internship and get the same experience. So I'm curious if you thought it was worth it looking back and if you would give the same advice to somebody coming up now to go to graduate school for working in our business. I definitely thought it was worth it. I mean, I feel like, you know, the graduate school experience is one that is so enriched with not only self-discovery, but it's just you get a hiatus from real life to just be a better craftswoman or craftsman of your artistry. And I think that that's just something that is underappreciated. You know, there were just 
basic things that I learned um, as a story maker and a storyteller that I don't think, I think it would have taken me so much longer to learn had I not gone to grad school. I think that the context that grad school gives you and also just the tribal connections that you receive are just in, invaluable. So for me, you know, I definitely think it's worth it. Um, obviously, you know, if you don't love school, <laughs> it's probably not the route to go. But um, I feel like if you if you like studying your craft, you know, particularly if you plan on being a student for life, which I which I do and I am, um, I think it's good to go. So yeah, I loved it. That's good to hear. I like that. And I think also, I don't know if this, it was like this for you, but for me, grad school taught me how to write in a way yes. that it kind of undid all the writing I did in college, which was sort of like the very, you know, uh, mm -hmm. blossomy writing of, of sort of college to like just the facts, ma'am, writing of J school. Did you have that experience too? That held super helpful for like writing decks and treatments and just Absolutely. concise narration, right? Writing is the cornerstone of what we do in this business. And I think um, the precision and the clarity that grad school forces you to, to acquire as a writer, I think is just invaluable. I also feel that um, it, it really allows you to your point to kind of deprogram and, and from, you, you know, you grow up just feeling like, Oh, got to write an essay. Oh, got to write this. And, you know, grad school, it's, this is actually your, your time to find your voice. So, so yes, you get better technically, but you also just get better at, at learning your language, which I think is, is essential to having a successful career in this business for sure. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. So I like what you said about, um, take the first job. And, yeah. <laughs> and I agree with that. I mean, my first job was in Bangor, Maine, in, you know, market 155. Yes. So yeah, I took the first job for sure. <laughs> and don't regret it. Um, so I, I just want to get the time. Like I'm very, I always have to know like the, the geography too. So the first job after uh, you said you were like PAing for different shows, for lifestyle shows, was that back in Colorado where you, did you move to New York? Like where did you go after, after grad school? So I was in New York for a little while and did some PAing work on independent films and 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 different projects here and there. And then I actually um, had a very traditional fairy tale moment in that I got married a couple of months um, after I graduated with my master's and I got married in Colorado. So um, I was broke. He was broke. We were like, okay, we're getting married because we kind of think we sort of love each other. Let's just try to do this, but we need to make some money. Um, and so that's how I was lucky enough to, to meet High Noon because they had an office in Denver. And so I had no intention of staying in Colorado. We were, we were pretty much ready to move to New York or LA. My husband's in finance. And so we had been planning for that. And so they were, you know, they were there and I was like, okay, great. I thought it was just going to be a little bit of a gig in between, um, projects, but they wound up, you know, having a full-fledged production company there. So I was able to, to work there for not too long, um, of some, some months time, but it was, it was awesome. And, and, and gave me, I really thank them for that period because it allowed me to settle into adulthood, uh, wifehood, and then also to do that while continuing my career and not having to press pause. So that was awesome. Yeah. That, so you said you worked, you ended up working there for six years in development. Am I, was that where Pam Healy worked? Yes. So yes, did you work yeah. for Pam? Yeah, I worked for Pam. So it was about five years that I worked for her. Yes. And Pam, when I first, now I'm like forgetting the exact Zach, but, um, 
she hired me. And I think at that time she was a director of development and I was a coordinator. So there are a couple of positions between us. And then um, she ascended to vice president and, and then, um, yeah, and I too started to grow as well. So went from coordinator to manager to director before leaving and, and joining Hudson. So having been in the field for a while and then transitioning to development, once you got to development, was it this feeling of like, oh, I'm home. Like, this is what I was meant to do. Like, how, how was that? Hell that yes. Like, I can't yes. go back now. <laughs> yes. I mean, I remember going when I was in grad school, we, you know, everyone, you, you, you write your thesis and you had, you know, I had spent some time in Los Angeles and had interviewed, um, was lucky enough to interview a lot of development executives on the film side. Um, so even before I graduated and started working in the business, I had my eye on development because I had an understanding that it was just, in my opinion, if you ever thought you wanted to have a PhD in, in what it is that we do in film studies, um, then development is going to be super exciting for you because <laughs> you get the best of both worlds. You, you got to know about execution and production, but you also have to know how to dream big and you have to know um, how to track audience, you know, and marketing and all of that. So it kind of felt like a great aggregation of all the things in the business that I was excited about. And, and at that time, when I was doing, you know, a lot of my graduate work, I was just looking at film development. And as you know, it's, it can be years, you know, you're developing a film for seven years, eight years, nine years, and I'm a frantic chick. Like I, you know, I get very impatient. And so I was like, well, damn, can we look into TV development? And once I realized television development could be shorter, um, I was like, okay, let, let, let's maybe tackle that side of the business. So, you know, after I had freelance for a couple of years and when I, when I found High Noon and, and, and found, um, you know, their development team, it was really exciting because not only were they a company that they were already pretty established, you know, they had been around for a while, um, and I think that they they were, it's hard to find a company when they're established and they're also excited about what's next. And so for them, you know, they didn't, ha I don't believe they had like a formal development team until Pam Healy came on board because they were just used to, you know, being guys that just pitched out stuff they liked and got it sold and got it, you know, and got it produced. And so um, it was great to, to enter a development team that was also somewhat nascent because even though they had had, you know, lots of success in the past as producers, I was able to be there and work with um, Pam and, and the rest of the team on, on trying to figure out, you know, what, what's next and, and how do we do this development thing in LA and, and how do we make it happen? Favorite part of development and most hated part of development, go. Oh, my favorite part of development. Well, I love when the page is blank, right? Because when the page is blank, anything is possible. And you're like, you know, we might be able to go to the moon with this. Like this is about to blow up. And so that that's, that's one of my, and my other favorite part is like the performance of it, getting the buyer excited about it and getting them to see what it is that you love about it and how you feel like this has the has the possibility to move the needle forward. I mean, the worst part of development is the monkey on your back, right? The monkey is on your back and the monkey's like, did you sell that show? When's the last time you sold a show? When are you going to sell a show again? So you can't really yep. you <laughs> enjoy. Can't relax. Yep. You can't <laughs> relax because as soon as it's over, everybody's like, oh, that was really good. Okay, so what's next? You know, it's it's very indicative of what people love and 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 loathe about Hollywood. You know, I think so development true. represents both. You're so right. Wow, that is so true. 
That's great. So, so once you decided you were going to make, yeah, I, I wonder what, what happened from Hudson to Lifetime? Like, did Eli come knocking at your door and you thought maybe yeah. it would be good to get some network experience? Yeah. Well, how did that all happen? Well, Hudson, I mean, look, Hudson was where I found myself. I, I, I feel like Michael Rourke, um, who's the principal of Hudson Media, he he gave me wings. I mean, he, you know, look, it was a boutique shop. He had been an award-winning talk show producer, starting his own unscripted prodco. And, you know, he was just like, look, I, I don't know. Let's just, let's just do it. You know, there weren't a ton of rules other than like, let's just make stuff that we love and let's just see how far we can run. And so that time was, I would say one of the most joyous times in my career, because it was that level of freedom and the confidence that I received, you know, from that and doing a little bit of everything. Cause it's a small production company. So, you know, yeah, you're, you're, you're head of development, but you're also doing a little bit of the EIC work and you're also doing the marketing and the graphics. And so, the decision to to leave Hudson was not an easy one. And I think had I not been at a very specific crossroads in my personal life, I probably would have stayed for a longer period of time because we were, you know, we were doing well and we had success on multiple levels. And so um, I had had the good fortune of meeting lots of great buyers when I was at Hudson um, and Eli was one of them. And, you know, he, he was at Bravo when I was at Hudson and we had sold good shows to him and maybe some not so good shows to him as well. <laughs> we and want to talk about And those. he was, you know, and he was kind and, and respectful in any, any event. And, you know, I had been at home with my beautiful baby girl for, for some, about a year or so. And yeah, he, he, you know, we kind of hooked up and he was just like, yeah, I, I, I'm looking to build out my team. You know, where are you at? Are you interested on coming to the network side? And, and other people had asked me before. I mean, I think that, um, I had been lucky enough to to have, you know, some good colleagues in that space that had had asked me about joining um, some of their teams too. But um, Eli, it was different just because I I felt like, again, you know, I, I felt comfortable in that he knew what I could do as a producer and a developer. And I also had respect for where he had taken his personal career. And so, um, you know, it's all about who you work with, not necessarily where you work. And so it felt after having such a great experience with Michael, and feeling like we were kindred, I wanted to go into a situation where I felt like the team that I was joining, I had a lot of equal respect and had and, and had some promise with. And not only Eli, but the entire team he had built at that time was just great. You know, Mariana uh, Manella Flynn was there at the time, David Hillman, Kim Chesler. Um, there were a lot of great buyers there on that team that I had pitched to a million times and they had passed on me a million times and vice versa. And I was just excited about joining the, you know, the broad team. So it felt like the right move. And I was also curious about the buying side because I knew that in order to be the best ideator, developer, producer I could be, I needed to have more knowledge about what that side of the table looked like. Was there one big moment to your point where you were like, oh, now I get it. Like now I get why those three shows never sold being on the other side. Oh, like, yeah. what, So what is it? Like, how would you distill like that knowledge if you had to into just like one thing that's just like, oh, this is what I wasn't thinking about as a producer. Yeah, I mean, I think that it wasn't just one thing as much as it was just like, a couple of light bulb moments that had in rapid succession. One that was the most humbling is like, 
you're not as unique as you think you are, right? Like, so you spend a whole bunch of time as a producer originating and you're like, oh, this is so dope. And I'm gonna put this track with it and I'm gonna shoot it like this. And then like you, you hand it off. And I remember my first development meeting, I saw like eight different versions of the shit that I had been pitching. You know? So I was just like, oh, That must wow. have blown your I'm mind, like, right? Because you, like, you really, you yeah, you're so in your little, I, I totally relate to that. And I know like the only time that, I don't know if this was like for you, but for me, it would be when I would talk to the agent and he'd be like, oh yeah, there's three other X projects out there. I'm like, there are? Someone else like, thought what? of my brilliance? <laughs> what do you mean? And, and, and I, you know, particularly at High Noon in Hudson, I had like, I prided myself on finding like the obscure character and that very small article that no one else read, you know, yes, maybe the New Yorker had a little bit of something on, but no one else was as well read as me and knew about it. So, you know, I think that that was a humbling experience. I I think the second light bulb moment that happened was just being in the green light room and realizing that these buyers are people with their own preferences and prejudices and biases and one little thing can change the mood. So, you know, if you've got a, you know, a beat in your sizzle where, you know, the character says something that's a little raunchy, if the person in research or the person in marketing is a little, you know, mitten gloved and they look a certain way that can kill the mood, you know? So they're, so recognizing them as individuals, it's kind of that, like that moment you have when you realize your parents are human, and you're like, oh, <laughs> you're yeah. So well, then, but it's also hard. You're so right because then you realize, wow, this whole thing is so damn subjective. Like, it's you, so you subjective. hit the wrong person on the wrong day who just got you know cheated on by their husband work. or whatever their situation is. I've had that happen a few times where I've gotten that very specific feedback of like it reminded so them of X, and you're like. That's it. I'm and scared. you're like, that has nothing to do with me. <laughs> right. And so you, and then you realize you live and die by the person you pitched it to, too. Like some people are better than others, right? And they've so got to like, pitch it up and they've they got to pitch sell, it up. Yeah. yeah. And I think that third light bulb, which is probably the most relevant, was just understanding the business side in the sense that like as a producer, your, your job, yes, you understand the business. And, but I think you, you really just mostly only understand like your personal margins, right? Like, you know what you need to get in order to make money for the production company that you're working with. But then at the same time, you, you may know a little bit about like the demo that you're trying to reach and a little bit, but you're just creating and you're just, and you should be, you should just be creating the best show that you can. But when you're on the network side, the best show doesn't always win. The best show has to do with a lot of things. It has to do with ROI. It has to do with how it performs internationally. It has to do with, you know, the critical acclaim that it, receives or doesn't receive. And so there's all these other factors that go into whether you get a green light or not. And that was the biggest education. And that was the longest education, I would say, because I think the market is still figuring it out. You know, we're changing so much. Now the streamer, you know, SVOT has kind of changed things as well. And so it's another re-education that's happening for us all. And so that part of the buying gig, I think is just that's the big divider. It's like, okay, this is, if the producer is about the show, the buyer's about the business and you know, you need both to make show business. So how, how, how do we live there and how do we feel comfortable in that space? Yeah, that's a great point. I think the other thing is that, um, you know, I think I've heard this from a lot of people that do what you did and make that leap, um, to the other side, which is that, 
like you said, they understand the business part. Like there's so much more behind ad sales and, yeah, you know, you think, like you said, you know, it's sort of like, well, it's our creative vision. It's just a great show, but there's so many other business factors that go into, I mean, you can make a great show, but if no one watches, it's not a great show. Right. So totally. Yeah. <laughs> sort of no like, one cares. Why are we bothering <laughs> here? Right. So yeah. it's interesting. Also, I was thinking about your career and you mentioned Michael, who I don't know, but you know, that he was so influential to you. And then you go, work for Eli and now you're working for Dave Eilenberg. Like you're working for, you've been very fortunate to work for these wonderful people because like Eli and Dave are, are two, I don't know if you heard my development podcast, I don't know, maybe six weeks ago where we kind of talked about our favorite people and it was like yes. Eli and Dave were just like the two top that just everybody unconditionally loves. And it's so funny that they're both they, your, been your bosses. Or, it's, it's cool. Like it's, it's interesting. I've been lucky in that I've, 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 found a lot of great people in a business that is sometimes accused of being empty of, of great people. Um, you know, even after Eli left Lifetime, I then went into this era of working for women, which I think was very, very great for me, especially as a young woman. Um, obviously, I had worked with Pam before um, as well, and I count her in that. But I think on the buying side, you know, working at a place like Lifetime and and having the opportunity to work for women leading that team like Gina McCarthy, like, you know, that was really refreshing too, because it was like, oh man, like for us, by us, right? We on some FUBU 90s stuff right now. Like we're about to really, you know, make our mark. And so um, leaving Lifetime, it was equally important to then go to another great person. And, and David Eilenberg and I had never had the pleasure of working together, but I had orbited around him. Um, you know, obviously I had pitched him before when he was a buyer um, at Turner. And, and then, you know, I, he had pitched me before at Lifetime. And I just always had a lot of respect for him as a producer and executive, but mainly as a human being, like, as, as you well know, his his warmth and his sincerity and his eloquence is really unparalleled in the business. And so um, I keep waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, I'm like, okay, well, you know, <laughs> where, where, where's the horns? But I don't think it's happening. Like, he's just a genuinely nice person and, and, and nice without the sugary stickiness. You know, he's sharp. He gets it. He's not soft. You know, yeah, he's not like this softy that doesn't have teeth, but he's just a genuine person and he loves what he does. And I think that's the difference, like working with people that legitimately feel honored to have a seat at the table and understand the responsibility of that. And that, that, that's what makes it exciting. So I've been lucky, like, you know, there are some people I've come across, they'll remain nameless. <laughs> that, you only know, name names are, here, so. <laughs> are, aren't the best, <laughs> but by and large, most of the people that I, I feel like I've attracted a lot of good energy. So I'm super lucky in that regard. Yeah. I mean, I have to say when the sirens announcement came out, when was that? When, when did you make the leap? So that was um, like late. It was the week of the inauguration. Okay. So, the, so this uh, is so grand. Yeah. I was what, like, ooh. Incredible. <laughs> so can you talk about any sort of the behind the scenes of how that came to be? Because this is, that was one of those announcements yeah. that were very exciting for our business. You know, a woman, Thank let alone you. a woman of color leading this big company. I mean, it was like, yay. Thank God. It's so yeah. good to see it. And also like. <laughs> exciting when you see, you know, one of the things I've talked about over the course of the last year, I've had some individual interviews and some panels 
with both women and men, black women and men producers. And it's always yeah. about a seat at the table, right? That like, it, yes. nothing's going to change until there's um, black people in leadership in our business. And there's so few. Mm-hmm. So it's, it was so important. And, you know, obviously someone that's also really earned it and is, and is ready for it. Mm-hmm. Like what were, can you share sort of like how, how that all worked behind the scenes as much as you can tell us of how that came about? Sure. No, I still pinch myself because I'm like, wait, what's going on? Like, (laughs) it's a global pandemic. Who changes jobs in a global pandemic and who decides to take on a new president role at a a company? Apparently me. Um, No, I it all happened very fast, which I'm a believer that if it's meant to be, it's usually pretty easy Um, in, in that regard. I mean, obviously, you you work really hard to lead lead up to that moment where it can be fast and easy. And so I started talking to to ITV in November, like in a very serendipitous moment, David Eilenberg called me on my birthday. I don't think he knew it was my birthday, <laughs> to be fair, but I think I'm very witchy. So I take that as a good sign that he called me on my birthday and and just got to the point pretty directly and was like, are you available? We, we have a position that we think would be great for you. And, and again, you know, it just so happened to be that I was, I was approaching that window that, you know, every exec approaches where they can start talking to folks and, but I wasn't really looking, you know, I wasn't really aggressively looking because it was a pandemic and I've been working in my craft garage. Um, so when he called, I was curious, but it, it started to, you know, heat up pretty quickly. And, and I was then able to, to meet with David George and Adam Share and Danielle and just the whole team. And, um, so when we closed the deal, which, you know, happened, um, in a, in a good amount of time as well, you know, we, there was a lot of excitement around this announcement and I was just like, you know what, nobody cares. Like I am not, you know, I'm like used to being the chick that's like putting coals in the fire and like fanning the flames, you know, like I'm like doing that. I'm not used to being the person that's like the face. So I underestimated the excitement around it because I was like, yeah, this is, this is the right move. I was excited about the move. Obviously I worked my entire career for this kind of move. Um, but I didn't really think that it was going to be the ripple effect that it wound up being. And, and so for me, um, uh, you know, I, I didn't, ITV was great in that they didn't, they wanted it to be about me and sirens, but I, as an African-American woman understood that the moment that we were in culturally, um, was one that made it all the more sweeter being that we were, you know, for the past 12 months, as we have been at home honkering down against this virus, we've all been more self-reflective about our communities and what we can do better. And, and to come to sirens, which in my opinion, um, should be the kind of place that leads to charge and making the invisible visible and, and giving the silence voice. It was just such a, an affirming moment to, to, to then have it be announced that I, as an African-American woman, would be running that label. So I got very emotional because I'm a Scorpio and I'm an artist, um, but I was more impressed by just how happy people were for me. And, and just, I think we all are just ready for um, a normalization, as Shonda Rhimes says, a normalization of the higher ranks so that it's like, yeah, more women, more people of color, more people of different orientations. Like, let's just all be more forward thinking. And so um, the gravity of it was huge, you know, and I I was just blessed to kind of be a part of that right when the culture and right the week that we were celebrating the first Madam Vice President to, to have a career announcement like that was just unbelievable. I'm going to get emotional too. Um, <laughs> you know, what's interesting in the last 
was just thinking about this, like in the last 10 days, two of my black female producer, you know, producer friends, yeah. Yeah, produce, both producers have both gotten big jobs in, in the last, and I'm like, this is a shift. And, and I wonder, am I just from where I sit thinking it's a big shift, but from where you sit, are you, are you seeing this like more now or am I crazy? No, I think, I think, look, I think that black women have been in the room throwing coal in the fire for a long time. Right. And so like, I came, I came up with a class of black women in this industry, TV writers, directors, many well-known now where we all, you know, have been kind of priming each other for this moment. And, and for a long time, it felt as if it wasn't going to happen, or there was the exceptional one, you know, like I'm not exceptional. Like there are many other African-American and other women of color that are dynamite at what they do and should have that seat at the table. And I think we were all kind of getting to the point where I was like, I mean, screw a seat at the table. I will make the table. You see me sitting here in this craft room. I will pull out a saw. You'll literally and make, make the table. The table. <laughs> I will and make people the table. Can't, people can't see this, <laughs> so, what I'm seeing, which is like, she looks, her, your garage looks like it's out of a, <laughs> A movie slash design magazine. Super. It looks like a set. It looks like a set. I know. It's ridiculous, it's right? It's amazing. But we did. We got to that. We were like, we're not going to be in this place. We're, we've been shouting it into the ether for decades. We've had allies. We've had lots of, you know, there's been progress for sure. But we we all kind of got to a point where we were like, we're, we're, we're done waiting. We'll create these tables ourselves. And then the world opened up. And the world opened up right when it hit rock bottom, which is what, usually happens when we change, right? You, you are forced to see something that's so abhorrent and, and so, you know, dehumanizing that you say, I need to rise above this. Let's open, let's open the door. And so, you know, I think most of us stepping into this moment are checking the organizations that are hiring us to make sure that they mean it, you know, like let this not be a headline that makes you feel good about being an ally. Like, are you ready for this black girl magic? Cause it's coming. And it's gonna look different and it's gonna make you feel uncomfortable sometimes. But we feel that we've been behind the scenes and we've been there right alongside our, our counterparts working and we know the business and we know how to be successful here. We just have to make sure that the seat doesn't have wheels, that it's there, it's planted <laughs> and 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 we're there for it. So I agree with you, I think, go ahead. Oh no, I'm sorry to interrupt. I was wondering if you think that this shift that I agree with you. I hope it's 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 ever evolving and, and staying um, will also affect the kind of content that we're seeing. You know, I was thinking mm-hmm. I was thinking about a bunch of shows even from a year ago. I thought like, yeah, why isn't there a black lead? You know, and, and a year yeah. ago we weren't thinking that way, you know. And so I wonder if you think and if that's maybe one of your goals at Sirens to amplify some of those people and voices more. Than Absolutely. I think you will naturally see it affect the content. I think what's going to be exciting for folks is that you will see the difference, but you will also see that it doesn't mean that you're erased. You know, the, the it's the fear of inclusivity has been, but what, but what about my place in the world? But what about my voice? And I still count. And I think that people, you know, when you're a minority, a woman of color, a, a gay male, a, you know, there's so many different minority groups, but when you are a minority, you are used to watching other people 
tell your story and you're used to finding yourself in other people's stories. So I grew up in the eighties and there weren't a lot of, you know, yes, we, we had the Cosby show and we had a different world and we had a couple of big hits that were on, you know, NBC or Fox. But for the most part, I was watching film and television shows where I didn't see a version of myself. I didn't see anyone who looked like me. And I still was finding joy and pain and tragedy and triumph in those stories. And I was still identifying with those stories to a certain degree because I'm a human and (laughs) I'm on this planet. And even if you're not looking at me and you don't think of yourself as similar to me, we are a part of one another, right? So I think that minority groups were used to finding, you know, a version of themselves in these people that look nothing like them and didn't have the same. And so what we ask majority groups is like, okay, well, it's your turn because you see, (laughs) I have studied you and now you study me. And what you will find is you will find yourself in me as well. And so I think that's what's exciting and that, yes, you will see more voices that you haven't seen before. You'll see people, you know, in their subcultures and their experiences that haven't been celebrated before. But I also think you'll see a thread of humanity, which is very universal, which will be very relatable. And I'm hoping that that's when we'll really see it open up because people will be like, oh, okay, well, yeah, I still get this. You know, I was talking about auntie culture with um, a friend and she's Southeast Asian. And it's like, I'm a black American woman. She's South, but our aunties are the same. They are the exact same, you know, you know, and it, it's interesting because we, it's like this secret that people of color know where it's like, yeah, it's different. We celebrate the differences because that that's what makes human humanity so amazing. But there are so many threads of, of likeness and similarity there. And so I, I, I'm excited. I feel like you'll see an explosion of it, but I hope what, what keeps it here and what keeps it present is that you'll also just see this thread of humanity and universality that people will get even more excited about. I love everything you just said. And I'm literally in shock that you grew up in the eighties because you look 25, but we're just going to leave that there because I'm still like jaw on floor. I'm listening. I've listened to every word, but I'm just like, there's no way she grew up in the eighties. Okay. We're just going to gloss over that because I'm completely floored. You know what? I did. I did. I got got, got it. I'll have what she's having. Oh my God. Okay. So now you're, let's, let's, let's get up to the present. So you're at Sirens. Yes. Big fan. I mean, I'm, you know, a housewives Yes. Girl, I mean, been in on Jersey since season one. Yeah. I did fall off a few seasons, like right in the middle there, but but I've been back for a while, bringing us a good season. So you yeah. came in, you know, to an already successful company that's obviously going to mm-hmm. just be bl- blossoming even more. Um, I, I know that, um, uh, and I said this in my intro that you have a new show on Netflix, uh, the wedding coach, yes. which is dropping. So tell us, I've watched some, it's really cute. I enjoyed it. I think the host was really funny. Tell us about, and I know this was obviously in production before you yes. got there, but tell, tell us what, what your favorite part of the wedding coach is and what we should be, what, why, why people should watch it. Well, I think the wedding coach is, you know, it's a fun ride because it, again, it's incredibly relatable in that, you know, Jamie, our host on the show, says something where she's like, you know, bridezillas, they get a bad rep. But the truth is, planning a wedding is incredibly stressful. <laughs> and, it, it, and and I think 
that's the show is really all about just acknowledging that it takes us all down. It turns us all into high stress versions of ourselves. You know, it's supposed to be the culmination of finding a soulmate, of finding someone that you want to spend this life with. And it's supposed to be the celebration. And next thing you know, you're pulling out your hair, you're screaming at people, you're not talking to your mama, you can't stand your brother. And it's just a stress fest. And so I think what's really fun about the wedding coach is that it just shines a mirror on what we already know. And it's unfiltered. It's unapologetic. You know, Jamie's really great at that. She's got a comedic sensibility that just cuts right through. And I think it's unconventional in a sense that, you know, we were raised to believe in the extremes of wedding planning shows. Like it's either glitzy and beautiful and it's like, um, or it's like crazy bridezilla, you know, and, and I think, the wedding coach really just finds the in-between that is the most relatable where it's like, you you have moments of both and you also have moments of numbness. Um, and she's really positioning herself, not as an authority figure, but as someone that's there along for the ride to kind of keep you level-headed, to make sure that you can poke fun at yourself, to keep you, you know, focused on what's the most important, which is just celebrating, finding the love of your life. So it's a fun show. I think that it's snackable it's relatable. You'll laugh, you know, it's not too complex. Um, and I think that, you know, my predecessor, Jessica and her team that ideated and sold the show for Sirens, um, they really wanted to strike the chord of just like, this is an everyday experience we all go through all over the world, no matter how we have our weddings, no matter how much money we make, no matter the color of our skin, this is a ritual that we do as humans. So how can we unpack it and how can we have fun with it? And I think Jamie does a really good job of being that connective tissue and, and doing that for the families that she's working with. I agree. It definitely feels like the 2021 version of a wedding show because yeah. you know we've seen a million and, and I think that they fall into a lot of those old tropes of, like you said, the bridezilla only focusing on the bride when it's two people. And I like yep. that this is a couple show. And I just think you're right from sort of minute one with Jamie, she's, she's, she sets the tone because it is funny. It is light. It's irreverent. And I just feel like people and weddings have evolved so much, especially now with COVID. I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's, it's like a whole different ball game. I mean, I think people are all rethinking these big life events and like, do we really need to spend that much money? Do we really need 500 people? You know, sort of like, it's like, no, yeah, I think we're all kind of giving a second look. So this is great. So it's so as of uh, when this podcast drops, it will all episodes will be available on Netflix. Yes. And everyone needs to watch so we can get a season two. Yeah, it's it's available right now. Binge on it. It's fun. It's easy. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it's perfect for now because it's springtime. Right. And like we're coming out of you know, we're coming out of a pandemic. Hopefully, fingers crossed, we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And so I think that. Um, the world is kind of ready to celebrate and get more ritualistic again. And so this is, you know, this is a fun time to watch a show that that's all about that. Agree. I was kind of like in the middle of, I think, two, two true crime things. And this was like the perfect buffer, like the, the palate cleanser. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, it's totally. fun and light. You know, I could just lay back. It doesn't hurt my brain. Very, very cute. Um, exactly. This, so is there anything else you want to say before we wrap up? It was so great to talk to you. No, this was great. Thank you for having me. You know, I mean, I feel like I've only been on the gig for, you know, a few weeks now. <laughs> but what have what you I sold, Mashi? What have you sold? I know. What, what's <laughs> up? What's up? But I do think that 
it's really exciting because we've had so much great progress in such a short period of time. You know, I think the Sirens brand um, is 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 evolving, and 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 Sirens will has always done a great job of speaking for women and speaking for different tribes of people that you don't hear from often. But I do feel like. We're, we're really streamlining in this space of, of, of wanting to give space for the bold culture maker, the person, often female, who, you know, has a seductive story to tell and is willing to take a dare, to take a risk, to step outside their comfort zone in order to push the needle forward in culture. You know, we're culture makers. And so I think that what the world can expect to see from Sirens is a lot of storytelling that just makes you take a little bit of a breath and it's like, whoo. It's like that feeling right when you're climbing that roller coaster, you're right at the top and then you're just screaming down, you know, like the sirens ride is really about that. It's about risk takers. It's about ceiling breakers, whistleblowers, daredevils, um, all in the name of culture, all in trying to move the needle forward, all in trying to show you a different perspective um, and have a lot of fun while doing so. So I think that it's an exciting time and, and you know, hopefully you'll have me on again and we can we can talk shop more. This was so fun. I'm really grateful. It was so good to hear about your career. I wish you all the best with your new, very exciting job. And we will all be watching The Wedding Coach on Netflix. Yay! Thanks. Thank you so much. Have a good one. You too. 